0: so I titled the sermon, The Most Important Thing. And um, here's what I want you to think about. What's the most important thing you've either been told or you could ever tell someone? Just think about it for a second. What's the most, if you were to die today after church, all right? Sorry, that sounds really ominous, which you won't, don't worry. But if if you were, okay? Uh, Happy holidays. If you were Uh, What would be the thing you'd want to, like, etch on the seat in front of you? Like this is the thing you've got to know about life. This is the thing that I've got to pass on to someone else. Um, That's a pretty big idea. Like the thing you want to pass on, the most important thing, if you could sum up your whole life and all of life. that's what I've been thinking about with this passage. Matter of fact, I, was, uh, I started getting online and researching, like, what are the most important things that you could pass along? And I came across this one site that kind of ranked uh, some different things, some different sayings. Uh, I figured you guys, do you guys want to see them? Okay, so this will give you some, like, some fodder to work with, in case you don't know. All right, so here's number one. This is most, this is the number one thing. That people across the world on the interwebs on this site that nobody's ever been to, I'm sure, says that you need to pass along. And I'm gonna let you finish it off, okay? I'm gonna give you part of it. First part is this: two wrongs don't. Do you agree that's the number one thing to pass along to people? No. No. Gosh, that's horrible. No, of course not. This site is horrible. It's lost all credibility already. But we're gonna continue with it. Alright, so number one it says, two wrongs don't make a right. This is number 17 on the list, all right? Number 17. You can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. That's right. How many of you have never heard that line before? Wow. Okay. Welcome, welcome to the world. So, like, that's just something we talk about. Like, sometimes you got to crack a few eggs to, to get the omelet going, all right? And some of us don't really like omelets. I'm sure they're free-range chickens. It's all good. Don't worry. But the reality is, like, sometimes it's got to happen, okay? Um, so that's number 17. This this next one wasn't on the list, but it should have been. Clear eyes, full heart. Can't lose. That's right. Coach Taylor. Anybody, anybody a Coach Taylor fan? Not... How many of you have never seen Friday Night Lights? Raise your hand. Okay, this is your homework assignment. Start planning this week. Not how you're going to read your Bible and get to know Jesus, but I need you to start investing in Friday Night Lights, all right? Coach Taylor's waiting for you. You're going to learn about life and marriage. You're going to learn about things and how you kind of treat other people. It's great. It's, uh, it's not as good as the Bible, but it's close, all right? So check, check that out. Uh, so, all right, and here's number 47 of 50. Do unto others... As you'd have them doing to you. They put this number 47. They said this is the 47th most important thing you could pass along to another human uh, as you move on to your next life, whatever it may be. Uh, Now, all that being said, I remember talking to my grandfather. We called him Pop when he was alive, Pop. And I remember talking to Pop, and like, we were talking about the Bible. And this is when I was 15. And I uh, really thought I knew what I was talking about. And, uh, and I remember like saying, okay, Pop, what's the most, important, the most important verse in the Bible? And this man, like, I'm going, like, he doesn't know his Bible and, and whatever else. And he's like, the golden rule. And I'm like, that's not even in the Bible. What are you talking about, the golden rule? That's dumb. And he goes, no, the golden rule is the most important verse. That's, that's the thing. And he would always talk about that. To do unto others, you would have them do unto you. And I'm like, but there's nothing about Jesus in that verse. There's nothing about God in that verse. How can you tell me that's the most important verse in the Bible? Until I read the Bible. And this is what it says here. I'm going to just put the verse up for you. This is in the NIV especially, just to emphasize it. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Okay, so this sums up the law and the prophets is a pretty big statement by Jesus. All right? So God shows up in the world and he's got a few things to say, right? He's got some things to pass along and Jesus is giving this whole message, all these sermons, the sermon on the mount, passing along all these things that are really important and you're taking rigorous notes and trying to keep up with them. For the last 6 months this is what we've been doing. Talking about all these ways, these this path of Jesus. And what it would take to follow him. And you've been taking all these rigorous notes. And it's all come down to simply this Sunday. And here's what Jesus has to say. Everything that I've had to say so far, everything that anyone that came before me, all that law that was passed on on Mount Sinai, all those prophets who had something to say, it can all be summed up with this simple line. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is it. And it's just kind of crazy to think, like, this is the thing that Jesus is going to pass on. It's not like, I'm God, and I'm way more powerful than you, and like, follow me, and boom, this is it. Like, it's, it's not that. It's not like, he's not even, like, trying to forecast the future, anything like that. He's just like, this is it. Do to others you would have them do unto you. And so it begs the questions, two questions. One, then, is what does this mean? Because I don't know about you, I don't think I've actually invested in this thought, this passage, this phrase enough. If you're like me, this is probably 47th on the list for you. I think Coach Taylor, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose, makes more practical application to me here and now than simply this passage. But for Jesus, this is it. So what does it mean? And then two, what do we do with it? So first, let's look at what does it mean? Now, I'm going to throw a lot of passages your way. You can mark it in your notes if you want, or look at your Bible, but we're going to have the verses on the screen, so I need you to kind of follow with me. A lot of scholars, when they look at this passage, they connect it to two other passages that Jesus is going to talk about some stuff. And these passages actually are, are, are the same in what he's saying. The first one is in Matthew 27, starting at verse Thirty-seven, Matthew 22, starting at verse 37. It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments depend on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So again, Jesus is using almost that hyperbole language. All the law and the prophets depend on this. The love of the Lord your God, hearts of mind, and strength, love your neighbors yourself. Then in Mark chapter 12, verse 29, we have another scribe coming to Jesus questioning him. They say, What's the most important law? Jesus says, Most important is this: Here Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. So you're seeing the parallel maybe, right? Do unto others, right? Love others. So do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love others as you love yourself. You see that parallel there, right? This is what Jesus is trying to get to here. This wasn't just a big deal to Jesus that you would bring these kind of parallels together. It's actually other writers. So Jesus' brother, James, he actually calls this the royal law. In James chapter 2, verse 8, James says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Like if you're really fulfilling this law to love your neighbor as you love yourself— You're really doing well. If you want to know if you're successful in your walk with Jesus, if you want to kind of put a gauge on that, and know you're doing well, you'll love others as you love yourself. But not only James, actually Paul thinks this is a big deal as well. In two of Paul's greatest books, Romans and Galatians, here's what he has to say. Romans 13, 9 says, for the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. That's him concluding the book of Romans. And then in his conclusion of the book of Galatians, here's what he says. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I'm not trying to make it overkill, but I am trying to make a big point that this is a big deal. That the writers of the New Testament all have this theme that if we don't pick up on it and understand it, we're going to miss out on what Jesus was really trying to come and accomplish and do. Because at the end of the day, and this is what you've been hearing from us on stage on a Sunday, this isn't about you getting saved and getting to heaven and getting out of this perfidy of a world. This is about change in your life, so there can be change in this world, and it only can really happen when we invest in the world the way Jesus is saying through someone on the mount. And he's saying that it's all summed up with this, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, there's an obvious meaning to this, and there's an implied meaning to this. So let's just kind of cover these two. There's an obvious and implied. What's obvious? To love your neighbor and treat them well means to see another person's worth and dignity. It means to see the imago Dei of who they are. The imago Dei is Latin for image of God. This is something that churches And church fathers and scholars have passed down for hundreds of years now to see the image of God in another person. Let's listen to to Dr. King, what he has to say on this. The whole concept of the Imago Dei is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. I love that. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him uniqueness. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. Dignity and worth. This is... The most obvious we see here, to love your neighbor, to love your neighbor is to give them dignity and worth, not because they deserve it, not because they've earned it, not because they're on your good side, but because they are made in the image of God. I want you to imagine the person you like the least. Hopefully they're not in this room. Imagine the person you like the least, the person who gets under your skin the most, the person you plan every week to somehow stay away from. It could be a parent. It could be a sibling. It could be someone who's been in your life. I don't know. It could be somebody on one of the news stations. God has made that person in his image. That person then deserves dignity, and they are worth something. And you help give that to that person by how you treat them. I did a little research 31,000 scriptures in the Bible have to deal with this idea of dignity and worth. 31,000 scriptures. This includes things like justice, caring for the person, whatever it may be. 31,000 scriptures. Caring for others. Justice is talked about twice as many times in the Bible as heaven. Now what is that trying to tell us? 31,000 scriptures are talking about things like dignity and worth. Things like fairness and honesty and justice. And justice is mentioned twice as many times as heaven. Getting to heaven in the heavens. What is then that telling us? That this world really, really matters. And how you interact in this world really, really, really matters. How you treat others in this world really, really matters. Things matter. And how we spend our time interacting with other people are the things that actually God is looking at. He's way more interested in that than how much theology you have under your belt and how you can kind of work your way through any kind of systematic theology. He yawns at that. He's way more interested in how you're spending your time in giving dignity and respect and treating other people around you with worth. But you know what? We get that. That's that's just like understood, right? That's That's not a new thing to you. It's not a new thing to me. It's a challenge, but it's not new. But there's also another part to this that's not just obvious, a part that's actually implied. So what is implied here? I would say a couple of things. One, you'll only treat others with this kind of love. You'll only treat others with this kind of love of dignity and worth if you treat yourself with this kind of love first. First. You will only treat others with this kind of love and dignity if you first treat yourself that way. Guess what? I didn't make it up. Do unto others as you would what? Have them do unto you. Love the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We have a big gap here, I think, in our culture, and we're. We're really scared off by this, I think, because there's been a lot of psychoanalysts and trying to making things about ourselves, and it's become very selfish, and and church is always like reacting in these big shifts to to things, right? If you were to talk about self-love 20, 30 years ago, you would have gotten shot down going, man, that is ridiculous. Don't talk about that. Like, you know what you need to know? You're a sinner, and like, you're like, you need to get your life right. And it's not that that's necessarily wrong, but that doesn't really flesh it all out very well. Because the Bible doesn't start in Genesis 3, where does it start? Genesis 1. What Genesis 1 tells us is that you're creating the image of God. What Genesis 3 says, you try to take your life over and you start destroying that. Now the Bible is about us coming back to those terms of how often we're trying to take over our own lives and instead now give it back to God. But in this process, we have lost the capacity to even consider things like self-love. Scott McKnight, he's a, he's a scholar um, and writer, and he says this, self-love is the fertile ground for growing love for all, including one's enemies. If you listen to yourself in all of life, you will be led out of yourself into a life of loving others. Strange. So let's just kind of look at these two parts. He goes, self-love is the fertile ground for growing love for all. How well do you love yourself? And I don't mean Parks and Rec, Tom Haverford, like Treat Yourself Day. I don't mean that, all right? Some of those days are fine. What I mean is, how well do you actually care for yourself? You know, caring for yourself isn't eating whatever you want, whatever you want. It's not caring for yourself. It's not doing whatever impulse comes to you in the moment. At the same time, caring for yourself isn't trying to, like, like, beat yourself up by getting up at 5 a.m. every morning and running 10 miles and being, like, some kind of machine. Like, it's difficult being human, don't you agree? It's difficult knowing what's the right rhythm for yourself. We really don't know how to be that kind to ourselves. We're constantly in this shaming of who we are and who we're not. We don't really know how to love ourselves well. And I think that's a huge problem for us. Because if you don't know how to love yourself well, to the extent you love yourself, to the extent that you have to then stop in loving another person. If you are critical and demanding of yourself, like for example, I lived this way for years. I would just get up and look at myself in the mirror and I would constantly just go, man, you, you've just lost it, man. Look at you, you and your hairline, you and your waistline, right? I, and this started when I was a kid, even. I remember, I remember being so ashamed of being Iranian. I used to look at myself in the mirror and hate looking at myself. As a 12-year-old, that is insane, but that's pretty normal because you've dealt with that too. You were too skinny, you were too fat, you were too tall, you were too short, I remember somebody very close to me one time said, Robin, don't ever cut your hair short because your nose is really big. I don't know why you're laughing. That really hurt. I'm joking. It did hurt, but you can laugh. Like, those are the narratives we pick up. So, what I learned, you combine that with the theology of you're just this horrible sinner going to hell, it created this kind of explosion in me where i just had to keep denying myself ah here we go deny yourself take up your cross and follow him that must be what jesus means no it's not jesus doesn't mean that you need to treat yourself like crap so that you can then go follow him that's really like the antithesis of what god had tried to do in the first place with the imago Day. That until we actually learn to love ourselves well, we will always be limited in how we love other person. So you may think, if you're really honest with yourself, I'm not going to ask you to answer this. If I were to ask you, though, to gauge yourself on how well you love other people, I mean love other people. Like you see somebody hurting and you try to meet their needs. Like you do this kind of like sermon on the mount stuff. You don't just show up and take some notes on a Sunday and feel like, oh, okay, I, I kind of got this. But you're actually living it out. I think a lot of us would say that we're not that high if we're saying from like one to ten. And here's what I think the thing is I don't think that I don't think that it's not that high because you're not very obedient. I think that a lot of people are actually as obedient as they know to be with Jesus. I think the problem in loving others is that you just don't love yourself very well. I think that's the missing link. I think we have a problem loving others because we really don't know how to love ourselves well. And here's the thing, I can't answer that for you how that looks, but I can say this, Jesus is really interested in that love is patient and kind, right? It does not get envious, it's not rude or jealous. Talks about that in 1 Corinthians 13, that's what Paul's talking through. That until those things are very real to us first, we'll never really be able to give that to the person. Even think about the second part of what McKnight said. It's not just that self-love is the floor ground. The second part is, if you listen to yourself in all of life, you will be led out of yourself into a life of loving others. Karen Armstrong, it's in your bulletin, She's a writer and theologian. She said, look into your own heart. Discover what it is that gives you pain and then refuse under any circumstance whatsoever to inflict that pain on anyone else. This is what McKnight's trying to get to. If you'll start looking within, and I don't mean looking within for the answers to life. That's what God's for. I mean, looking within, though, Like, what is it? What are the things that bring you pain? So, if that brings you pain, then maybe don't bring that to another person. If you don't like being shamed for who you are or you're doing your best and following Jesus, if you don't like that, then don't shame another person. Do you hear that? That's really important. If you don't like being shamed, now, some of us in this room are like, shame me away, baby. That's what I love, all right? That's called sickness, and there's therapists for that. That's called toxicity, because you learned that firsthand from somebody that told you growing up you were never good enough or smart enough, and doggone it, nobody liked you. Probably a bad reference for this guy, but like you're too young to know that reference. All right, so, but like that may be the case. You may love that. That's the world you grew up in. But that's not the world that Jesus is creating here, one where you're shaming yourself into doing the right thing, because eventually you're going to run out of energy. One day, the day will come where you'll have to fall on your sword because you'll simply say to yourself, all that's left is simply duty, and I'm done. And thank God some of you have had that crisis, and you're working through it. And I fear for others in this room that haven't yet, because your toxic shame of yourself will not get you very far. So, there's this implied part that's saying that you will only be able to treat others with this kind of love if you treat yourself with this kind of love. But I'd also say there's another level to all this. It's this. You'll only treat yourself with this kind of love if you believe God treats you with this kind of love. So we're going to put it on the screen. It's really simple. This is, this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is how it's all summed up. Love God. Love you. Love others. Love God. Love you. Love others. If you, just, if you ever just want to sum up the Bible, period, this is it. And yet when we take away that first part where it's just simply love you and love others, here's where the breakdown happens. You really don't know your worth. So if you don't really know what you're worth, you don't really know what another person could be worth. Some of you in this room are loving yourselves the best you know how because you have a God that doesn't love you very well. Here's what I mean with that. You love the talk about Grace. You love the talk about forgiveness and mercy. You love the talk about justice and God intervening. And then you start looking at your own life and what's happened and you go, I don't see that much mercy or justice or grace. So that must, I must be God's kryptonite. I remember growing up thinking God really loves a lot of people. Like he just loves these orphans and he loves all these people that grow up in broken homes and all these people that I remember watching like Drugs to Jesus stories on TV. You're like, oh my God, he loves that person. I would see someone really like blessed and like how they're, you know, they're like God's blessing financially or emotionally, whatever else. And I would just think I must be God's kryptonite. That person's Jacob and I'm Esau. Meaning God's going to bless Jacob, but Esau he hated. That was my understanding in life. And I didn't always know how to articulate that. But it's like the God I would talk about and the God I took home with me was vastly different. And it was killing me. You see, in Genesis 1 and 2, it's actually God showing up to Moses and Israelites saying, I need you to understand a different narrative about how this world works. That you aren't these little, like, worthless creatures That's for the busyness of me as a God. You actually are created in my image. Unheard of at that time in history. For a God to show up and say you're made in my image, you have all this worth and you matter. God starts defining the beauty of humanity and what they're here to do. To be stewards in this world. To make a difference. To co-create with him. He was giving them back meaning for their lives. And this, in turn, is where they found their meaning to love themselves and, in turn, then love others. This is the simple formula of the Bible. This is the way it works. This is how God always meant the world to be. And so if you find yourself not able to love others very well, then you go, okay, it must be because I don't love myself very well. But then you realize something. I don't even know what it means to love me. There's your problem. Because you don't really have a God that you can look to that says, this God loves me, not for what I do, but for who I am. Do you get that difference? Like, you aren't loved by God because of all your quiet times, and all the times you've been to church, and all the days you've stayed sober, or all the days that you've killed it for Jesus. You aren't loved for that. For how good of a mother you are, how good of a father you are, how well you do in your work, how many times you serve in the city. You aren't loved for that. You're loved because you simply have worth, because you're made in his image, and until you and I actually start picking up on that, internalizing it, we will always be living as half-hearted creatures, never really knowing how to love another person very well, only giving them the scraps, because we only have scraps for our own life. So then what do we do with this? How does it shape us? Because this is big. And here's the thing. This isn't like you've never heard this before. I just want you to hear this. You may have heard this a thousand times and you just disregarded it and just said, ah, not that big a deal. Let me get to the really big stuff in the Bible. This is the big stuff in the Bible. If you keep waiting for the big stuff in the Bible, this is it. If you don't like this, I don't know what to tell you. Like, this is it. There's not like another like level to level up on, okay? Another place in the heavens to get to in knowledge, so that means if you don't get this, you don't get God, what he's about. What it also tells us is that this takes a lifetime to get. This is a daily practice to know that you have a God who loves you, not because of what you do or because of who you are, to know that you can love yourself well, not treat yourself, but love yourself well. And then in turn, now love others. If you aren't in touch with you, you actually are very lonely for other people to be around. Some of you think you're so good at serving others, and people just try to get away from you because you're scary. You don't know how to be with you. You keep talking about a God that's love, but you actually don't have like something in you, a core, and they're going, wait a second, man, I don't know if I can be around this person you got all the competencies in the world, but none of the self-care. That's a scary person. You're going to run out of energy at some point in time. But if you get this part, you got a God who's big enough, who loves you, and you in turn now can love yourself well, that's going to give you the ability to love others around you. And that's Sermon on the Mount. So here's how Jesus starts his conclusions. We'll finish... The Sermon on the Mount next week with the final conclusion, but he has a couple of conclusions he ends with here. He simply says, verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, and then verse 15, beware of false prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, beware of false prophets. Enter by the narrow gate is a visual that you've probably heard before, taught in church, and maybe you've heard it taught in, along the lines of, like, this is either how you get to heaven or you're going to go to hell. How many of you have ever heard that before? Okay, a few of us. Okay, It's not what it's talking about. This isn't talking about if you're going to get to heaven one day or go to hell one day. Matter of fact, Jewish people weren't concerned about a heaven in Beulah land by and by one day. They weren't interested in that. They were interested And like life here and now, they were a greedy, needy people. They were two feet on the ground, toes in the soil, going, we need a Redeemer to come and show up and move out all these occupants who have been suppressing us for hundreds and thousands of years. We need something more. We need a Messiah. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That's what they were looking for. And this passage is actually not talking about how you get life one day. It's talking about how you get life now day, today. That's what Jesus was interested in. The word, he goes on to say, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Zoe, in Greek means life. It's this life of life here and now. It's the thing that you keep thinking could only be possible in your dreams here and now. I don't mean life that is without difficulties. Notice it says here, to get this life is what? Hard. You know what hard means in Greek? Hard. That's what it means. <laughs> it means like really, really hard. Really, really difficult. That's going to take a whole lot. It's gonna take a lot of effort and energy and giving yourself over to something. That's what it's gonna take. Any of you who've ever trained, whether for marathons, or you're working out, or whatever it may be, or you've studied really hard to take certain tests like LSAT, you know this. That's very hard, isn't it? It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work to try to get your body in the right shape, and yet, what do you get out of it? More life. Guess what? You lost weight. You get to live longer. More life. Literally more life. You quit a bad habit. Guess what? More life here and now. That's it. That's how it works. And Jesus is saying, those who actually want to go for it, it's going to be really hard. And there's only a few that get to it. But this is what my kingdom's about. Life here and now. But then notice the second part in verse 15. Beware of false prophets. And this verse would have brought up images, connotations, back to Jeremiah, starting in chapter 14. Because in Jeremiah, what we have are God's people in exile in Babylon. And they're they're in this exile, they're wondering, like, when are we going to get out of this? We're waiting for the return, the advent of the Messiah. Come, Lord Jesus, please come. Come, Messiah, to be with us. They've been taken from their homeland, and they're in exile. And in chapter 14 of Jeremiah, there are these false prophets. They were like preachers who would like preach from the Torah, but they actually weren't teaching what really the Torah was trying to get across at the end of the day. They were teaching what Jeremiah, what God says to Jeremiah is, they're they're teaching a word that tickles the ear. They're wanting to tickle the ear like a magician. And God is saying through Jeremiah, do not listen to these false prophets. They are liars. Because here's what the false prophets were trying to tell God's people just wait it out. Just wait it out, and you know what? God's gonna send us back in a few years back to our promised land. It's all gonna work out. It's all gonna work out. And you guys don't need to invest here and do the hard work to make life here and now. It's all gonna work out. And here's the thing it never worked out, they were lying. Like the message of the exile is life isn't going to work out for like 400 plus years. It's not going to work out. That is not the message you want to hear, I know, at Christmas. Merry Christmas. Life isn't going to work out for you. Happy holidays. That's not what you write on a greeting card. Your life will not work out. Happy holidays. But that was the message of Advent here in the exile. Life's not going to work out. But, but, but. You can still have life here and now. How is that possible? Life's not going to work out the way you want, and you can still have life here and now. Actually, more life than you ever imagined. You're not going to get what you want back to the promised land, and yet you can have so much life here and now that you can bring promised land to where you are. That was the exile. And friends, this actually is the story of Christmas, isn't it? that we have a God who comes to us in the midst of life not working out and saying, I'm not going to promise you a better life, but I'm going to promise you more life. I'm not going to promise you how all these things are going to work out the way you want. You may not get the marriage you want or the many children you want or the job you want or the situation you want. You may not get it. You may not get the church that you want. You may not get the health that you want, but I will give you life and it more abundant. That is like breaks my brain in half because I thought if I got more life then all these other things will happen and God's like no, 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 no that's just life on your terms that's you actually not getting life because what I offer is for you to learn to live in this world not on your terms but on my terms but when you do that child you will learn that I love you and you can love yourself and in turn you can love others and this is what brings the world back together and friends, that's a message of hope that's something the world can seek its teeth into. So this is what we're offered, to not listen to false prophets, but instead walk by the narrow way. And this is Advent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, that Advent is something that is, gosh, so difficult to wrap our minds around sometimes. Like, yes, it is you, Jesus, as this little baby that comes to us in the midst of tragedy. And you do bring hope. And yet, and yet, um, that is still a hard path. It's a narrow path. It's one that a lot of people have a hard time making. And this morning I pray that wherever people are here this morning, whatever they are on the spectrum of this walking this hard path, the path of Jesus, this narrow way, that you would allow them to sift through the false prophets of today. Those who are saying that life's just going to be okay and work out and just wait it out. Those who would listen to false prophets and say, well, just disregard yourself. All that really matters is that you just try to care for other people. And the reality is we're loving people half-heartedly We really don't know how to love ourselves well. And the greater reality to all that is this, that we need a God that we know loves us deeply, loves us well. And that's what this table gives us. Communion tells us that we have a God who loves us deeply and loves us well, that we have dignity and worth. So Father, this morning I pray that we would bring our shame, our hurt, and our pain to this table and we'd be able to walk away with a whole lot of more life than what we had that we first walked in today. In Jesus' name, amen.